Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am very excited to introduce this week's guest, as she is both a friend of the podcast and just someone I consider to be a friend full stop. And that person is Katie Sinclair. Katie is an independent producer and development executive currently working at Blueprint Pictures, whose credits include three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, In Bruges, The Last Letter from Your Lover, The Riot Club and Emma, uh, where she sources and develops projects for the production company's Slate. She's worked in production and development for BBC Film, BBC Studios, Disney and Lionsgate. As a producer, Katie recently completed The Last Days uh, by writer-director Deepo Brewer Etty, which was filmed during the pandemic and was funded by BFI Network and BBC Drama Commissioning, while her previous short film Signs, written and directed by Yeri Timmy Bu, won the Youth Jury Prize at the Academy Award Qualifying Encounters Film Festival. She produces under the banner Tannehill Productions and is committed to developing and championing new talent. We talk about how she pursued a career in development, what she learned from working at BBC Film, our shared love of the Anna Paquin film Fly Away Home, why relationships are key to pretty much everything, how she has built her confidence in her taste and opinion, the difference between working in development for a production company as opposed to a public funder, the art of giving feedback and why the key is asking questions rather than supplying solutions, and her producing ethic and storytelling sensibilities and why they come down to empathy and care. I think interviewing people that you know is always a fine line because you don't want to sound too conversational or you know make it alienating for listeners and I have to admit I'm always a bit nervous to do it because it's like your own interviewing skills are suddenly under the spotlight but I have to say when I have done it and particularly for this conversation it's always just been so fun to have the opportunity to ask the kind of direct or career focused questions that actually maybe you wouldn't get to ask in a social setting and I I knew that Katie has really you know risen through the industry over the last few years and hearing her talk you can just you can totally understand why. She's very shrewd without being cold and very generous and humble with her answers and just knows her shit, I think. And yeah, I was I was just very thrilled to not only be able to facilitate this conversation, but to listen into it because I genuinely think there's a lot of wisdom within uh, about how to work in the film industry, about how to be yourself while doing that, also how to be kind while doing that. So I'm very grateful to Katie for just you know, being that person, um, and for also being interviewed. Uh, This is episode 109 of Best Girl Grip. I'm very excited to have you on Best Girl Grip. I I feel like we should maybe preface by saying that we we know each other, so it might, it it shouldn't be too inside baseball, but it might get giggly. I'm also the biggest fan of this podcast I think I've listened to every episode so I'm going to consciously be checking that I'm not repeating someone else's words of wisdom and stealing as my own because I definitely have taken so much on board from all the episodes you've done so thank you for having me that's very kind and that means a lot (laughs) as as you know (laughs) I start in the realm of university so did you go to university and if so what did you study there I did go to university. I went to King's College London and I studied English language and literature. And why those subjects? I had always wanted to work in film and didn't know how to get there. It felt like an impossible dream. It felt like something I could never really reach for because I had never met anyone who worked in the film industry 
Um, there was nobody from my school who had ever done it that I knew of. And it just felt a little far from me. And so I used research, as I often do, and Googled and, and kind of tried to see what the different roles were in film. And the main ones that I could see were writer, director and producer. And I liked the idea of writing and directing and I admired the work of writing and directing. But I and I like to write, but I didn't feel compelled or that it was something that I needed to spend my time doing. And so I started to look at producing and I kind of Googled, what does a producer do? And you, if you do it now, you'll find that nobody can answer the question. <laughs> I don't think I can answer the question. But I thought, OK, this seems interesting. You're involved in a project from start to finish and you're kind of putting all of the pieces together. And I guess, you know, at the Oscars, which was one of my only metrics for producers, you won Best Picture. So mm -hmm. you were responsible for the film. And so I thought, OK, that, that, that might be interesting. And so I looked up a bunch of producers. The other thing I should say is most of the producers I could find were men, but there were more women producers than there were writers and directors and so I think maybe subconsciously that also affected me there were very few female directors that I could see or writers and a lot of those producers had studied English at university and so English was a subject I loved I loved reading I loved storytelling and I also felt that if I couldn't make it into film which I, I thought was an unlikely chance that it would give me a good grounding and potentially other careers that I might be interested in. You said you always wanted to work in film. Was there a precursor to that always, you know, a film you saw that was like the tipping point? So I kind of have two answers for this. I think the one that resonates most and feels like I access most on a daily basis is Jane Campion's The Piano, which I love recently hearing so many amazing women in the industry saying that that was the film that also inspired them to work in the industry from Tanya Skatchton at the BAFTAs to Maggie Gyllenhaal at the Directors Guild Awards. You know, so many people cite that film and, and it's really true for me. I stumbled across it accidentally slightly because I loved Flyer way home the film that Anna Paquin was in <laughs> me too I love that film it was so I was describing something the other day and I was like it's just geese and vibes <laughs> like not a lot happens <laughs> but geese and vibes and I you know discovered the piano and it was Anna Paquin and a little girl sitting on the piano on a VHS and I thought great that that looks great and then about you know half an hour in you see Harvey Keitel's fully frontal penis and you you realize it's not quite the film that, that fly away home is but it's so much better and it's so much richer. And I think that film I watched in my teenage years and really exposed me to the female gaze and kind of women's cinema and music and cinema that I love and, and kind of storytelling and also representing untold stories and unheard voices that feel like I've built my career or trying to build my career around that. And so that film definitely, you know, inspired me and made me think if I could do something like that or work with someone like that, that would be fulfilling kind of everything that I would want out of a career but <laughs> probably the real answer actually is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs the Disney movie because I watched that on repeat as a kid and I'm sure most people can relate to this you had your VHS and you would watch and watch and watch and almost like the scary bits in the forest would be skipped because I was so used to fast forwarding through those and, and kind of that VHS was such a loved item of mine and at the end of the VHS I had there was a behind the scenes portion where they talked about how they animated a sequence with dwarves eating soup which other people might remember if they had that VHS and I remember I was you know a tiny child but I remember thinking oh someone makes this this isn't just the world of Snow White this is something that someone has created and someone has drawn and I think subconsciously 
it made me realize that that was a job that you could do and that you could create these stories that would connect and consume you in the way that I was so consumed by Snow White. And so I think that put that idea of it being a job into my head for the first time. Oh, yeah. Fly away home. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. (laughs) And obviously you're already kind of ahead of the game and that you had discovered what producing was and that you wanted to do it so upon graduating from university what were some of the steps that you took to try and break into the industry so I think for me it happened first when I was at university and I was afforded the opportunity to go and study abroad in America in my second year and that was at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill which was incredible and again quite a cinematic movie experience of, of going to a college town mm-hmm. and I knew that I really wanted to work in film and I was fortunate to have been given some funding from Kings to to do this and so I thought I'll put that funding to good use and see if I can get an opportunity in Hollywood or LA because having come from a background where you know nobody knew anything about film I didn't really realize there was an industry in London I didn't really understand um, how it worked I knew about the studios though I knew about Hollywood and so I wrote about 200 emails to various different companies you know googling you know info at paramountpictures.com you know finding these kind of email addresses online and of those 200 emails I got two responses, which at the time felt like a huge rejection. But now kind of knowing the industry and the statistics actually thinks pretty good ratio. Um, (laughs) One of them was from Dr. Phil, the TV show, which um, I had not meant to contact. And I always wonder what my life would have been like if I'd gone down the Dr. Phil route. Um, But the other one was from Lionsgate and a man named Matthew Jansen, who was a vice president of uh, production development had received my email and he wrote back and he said, can you do a script report? Can you do some coverage? And I didn't know what it was. (laughs) I was Googling it. And I I did this report and I had to go through an interview process. And then I was awarded a place on their summer internship for that year. So I moved out to LA. It was back in 2012, which was a great time for Lionsgate because they just released The Hunger Games that was doing very well. And they were working on the second film, Catching Fire at the time. And it was just a fantastic environment to be in. I was 19. I didn't know a single person in the city, but it was the most incredible thing I'd ever done because it put me right into essentially my dream world my dream landscape for a job and I had incredible colleagues you know executives who would sit me down and explain okay this is development this is how it works in the studio system and I had incredible fellow interns who are still some of my really close friends today who have all kind of moved out across the industry in in Hollywood and have had very you know interesting and successful careers in their own right and so that was an incredible opportunity that I was lucky enough to be able to do because it exactly pointed me and thought okay this is exactly what I want to do but now I have to try and get there from from London I have to try I have to try and recreate this but it gave me that first taste of of what I really loved. Do you think that cutting your teeth in Los Angeles gave you a different set of expectations for how the British film industry operated or you know what your role in it would be I feel like they're two quite disparate or different places a lot of people talk about LA just being you know they're very career focused. It is interesting. I think in LA, there is a slightly clearer path. If you want to be a producer or an executive in a studio, for example, or an executive in a production company, 
you start off as an intern, or you start off in the mail room of an agency, and you work as an assistant for a few years and really cut your teeth, whether that's at a production company studio or agency, then you're promoted to a junior executive, then you would go to director, VP, so on, so on. And it is, it does reward kind of if you do a good solid few years and as, as an assistant, usually you will find that next position above. In the UK, I found it was quite a different experience in that some people do the assistant route. And that's their way in, but it's less of a rite of passage in the way that is it is in LA. And 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 I think that's a good thing and a bad thing in, in some ways, because sometimes in the UK it can feel like there's no clear linear route anywhere. But also it means that you don't have to kind of do your devil wears Prada moment or sell your soul in any way, that there are other routes into the industry and hopefully it can feel a bit more accessible if you're not able to land that kind of elusive assistant job. And your first few roles were in assisting, production assisting or, uh, you know, being a production secretary. Can you break down a little bit about, you know, what that entails? What kind of things were you doing? Yeah, so my first job out of university was at Disney and that was in the kind of children's television department of of Disney Channel. Um, And I worked across kind of programming and then production and development. And this programme, by the way, just in case there are any listeners who are in university and are thinking about their next steps, if you're in your second year or first year, it's now offered as a sandwich year. So you can go and work for Disney for a year and then go back to university. And I would highly recommend you research it because it wasn't something I was aware of. And I probably would have done that if if I'd known about it. But at the time I was doing it, you could do it as a recent graduate. And that was an incredible opportunity because I got to work across, you know, a whole slate of projects, programming strategy for Europe, Middle East and Africa of how they're going to program certain content. And then specifically specific projects at Disney that they were developing with production companies in the UK for Disney Channel. So all kinds of admin, you know setting meetings you know going to markets internally wrangling the team but also lots of reading working across budgets and schedules supporting the production team a kind of real mixed bag a real variety which I absolutely loved and I met incredible people both within Disney but also my peers because they give you a whole there's a whole group of of interns that do the same program but in different departments so it was really amazing and a lot of those people are my best friends today but are also people who I've collaborated with career-wise. So it was an incredible grounding in the industry. And given the mixed bagness of what you're doing, how did development kind of appear to you as the thing that you were most interested in or the thing that you wanted to pursue? You know, was there a aha moment where you really thought, okay, that's what I want to double down on? From Lionsgate, really, I did a lot of reading and reporting back on scripts. And and I did that too at Disney. And that was something I really loved to do, kind of like doing a a report. It's like doing an essay at university, but you're arguing, should someone have a second read of this or should they not, essentially? And I really enjoyed that. And it felt like it suited my skill set. And I really liked the relationship building part of development, you know, tracking talent, getting to know people both internally and externally. I think the issue that I had with development that is something I've kind of struggled with my whole career is confidence, because a lot of development is having confidence in your conviction and your taste. And that can't really be taught in a way, your your instinct or your taste, but the confidence can be. And someone who didn't go, myself, who didn't go to a private school, who didn't, you know, I come across as pretty chatty and, and, and I can probably come across as quite confident, but actually I think I lacked a lot of confidence in my own taste and my own opinions. I felt, well, how am I meant to know if something's any good? You know, my self-esteem was entangled in that. And I think that's something that 
has grown luckily across my career but it's still something that I will have to continue to grow and I think that scared me about development because I saw people who had this sort of natural authority and kind of knew what they were talking about and I had those opinions too but I didn't feel that I could articulate them in the way that maybe others could and I think it's taken just a lot of time and kind of building my confidence to feel that I I can you know have a a space or a voice in a room and I think that was something that I was both drawn to about development but also scared me but I think I like things that scare me sometimes and I was so passionate about it that I felt it was something worth pursuing. If and when you're afflicted by a lack of confidence now what are some like workarounds or things that you say to yourself or do to instill yourself with the confidence to articulate your opinions? I think as I've kind of moved through the the industry, I've learned that you don't always have to articulate every opinion. You don't always have to be the loudest voice in the room. You don't always have to be, you know, if you're not sure or sometimes it's better to, to wait and see, you don't have to speak and you don't have to. And that actually there is a quiet confidence in listening and hearing what other people have to say and bringing your voice where it is most valuable. And I think around confidence, it's having that confidence in when to speak and when not to speak and and kind of and knowing that when you do speak or when you do articulate something, that it is just your opinion and everyone else is just saying their opinion and someone who might say it loudly or you think more articulately than you that doesn't necessarily mean that their opinion is right. It's just their opinion. And I think it's slightly blowing some of the steam out of the kind of hot air of of other people, maybe for yourself and trying not to compare yourself too much and focusing on, on you and your taste. And I also think some of it is just time. And the more you read, the more you watch, the more you talk to people, the more confident you get in yourself. But I still feel unconfident quite a lot of the time and I still have moments where I I doubt myself and I think I'm sure most people even at the higher echelons of the industry especially women I think will feel that and I think it's just about trusting your instincts and that's what I'm I'm always trying to do. And I think the point at which we met or I became aware of you was when you were a development assistant at BBC Film so talk to me about how you arrived at that role you know where did you hear about it and how did you get it? So I was working at the BBC at this point. I'd been there for a couple of years and I was working on Holby City um, as a researcher, which was brilliant in the drama department of the BBC. And I had met Rowan Woods, who, you know, has been a brilliant mentor of mine over the years and is now one of my very dear best friends, you know, a few years prior. And she alerted me to a job that was a development coordinator job within BBC Film. Whilst working at Holby, I'd been quietly making my own short films and kind of keeping that passion for film alive. And I saw that opportunity and I interviewed for it and I didn't get the job. But Rose Garnett called me and said, well, we actually are looking for an assistant and would you be would you be interested? And at that point, you know, I was 25. I had worked quite hard, you know, since I I entered, I got my first job at Disney when I was 20. So I'd worked for a few years and I'd kind of worked my way up and I was starting to get opportunities to script edit. And I thought, do I want to be an assistant again? I don't know if it feels a bit of a step back, which now looking back, I think, you know, of course it wasn't. But, (laughs) you know, you can feel that way because there's quite a big shrugging off that you do when you give up diary management, you give up assisting and you feel that it's a step up and an elevation. Mm. And I was quite nervous about doing it again, but there was something about Rose 
and Eva Yates that really excited me and Rowan um, and just the team and what BBC Films were doing and their kind of new mission under Rose and Eva that I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take take the jump. And it was by far the best decision I've ever made in my career. What kind of things did you learn about development, you know, from from being in that environment and absorbing the atmosphere? I think somewhere like BBC, being a public funder, you learn a lot about the industry kind of from a wide overview. So you understand what all the different production companies are doing, the different kinds of projects are out, that are out there, different filmmakers that are out there. And you have this kind of wide eye lens on the whole industry. And so for me, it was like, you know, suddenly absorbing like a sponge, you know, who everyone was, what they did, everyone's taste, you know, trying to read as much as I could both scripts and projects but also other people and seeing okay who might I like to work for who do I respect you know being able to have that access was incredible but also kind of the public funding aspect of it and being talent driven and looking at kind of developing emerging talent in particular and finding those voices who the BBC can really serve and BBC film and protect in particular serves so well was incredible for me in kind of getting that ethos built into me, but also being able to get to know talent that were kind of at the top of their game that need that like extra bit of support from the BBC. So I, I learned so much and and also just seeing my colleagues, you know, Rose and Eva, Yero Timmy Bue, who I work with and I, I made films with, Leon Farrell, Sam Gordon. They have an incredible business affairs team and production team who I, I love all dearly and just kind of getting to absorb everything that they were doing and and watch them work. That was the most valuable thing that I learned when I was there. And you spoke earlier about assisting being a rite of passage, perhaps more so in LA than it is in the UK, but obviously, you know, those are the entry level positions often. So what would you say is the key to being a good assistant, you know, to cutting your teeth or proving your worth in those roles to then be able to kind of move upwards? I think a lot of it is relationships. And I think a lot of, of what I've learned across my career so far, still very early in, is relationships. And it's about building both a relationship with the people you're assisting and trying to anticipate their needs, anticipate what they what they would like and kind of how they like to do things, realizing who are the key players that are really important to them. They're not necessarily going to spell those out for you, but you will get a sense of who they are and, and their key priorities, but also your relationships with your colleagues and particularly with other you know other assistants or people who can help you out because quite often you are going to ask other people for favors to make things work or or trying to find a work around things and so I think just building those relationships with others so that they can help facilitate you and, and you can help facilitate them too and I think that was something I really learned from working with Rose and Eva is kind of how to work with different sorts of people. And then you're in that position, I think, for about 18 months before moving on to Blueprint Pictures uh, where you were a development editor. You know, was that something that came internally, like a, a decision where you were like, OK, I need to move on now or I'm ready for something more? Did someone else say to you, you should move on? You know, how did that come about? Well, I think I'd taken the job at BBC with a view that I hopefully wouldn't do it for too long because I had been an assistant before. It felt a little bit like something I would do to get access into the industry and then hopefully kind of move on and move up. But I ended up really loving it and really wanting to stay in the BBC and really wanting to continue working there. And then I had met Jaya Campbell. And I'm very fortunate that a lot of my success has been thanks to women, you know, championing me. First Rowan and then um, obviously Jaya. Um, Jaya was working at Blueprint Pictures and was head of development at the time. And, you know, we had met and we'd really got on and she kind of told me about that there might be an opportunity at Blueprint. And I had always been very interested in producing and I thought it would be really 
you know, fascinating and informative to go and work for a production company mm-hmm. and to understand now that I had a little bit of experience in how it worked being at a public service financier, being able to work from the production side. And I was also so interested in development that I thought it was an incredible opportunity. But I think most importantly, you know, I really trusted Jaya. I really liked her and I felt that she was someone I could really get along with. And I think, again, when I look back at at the decisions I've made, often they have been motivated by people that I felt I trusted or that I could connect with. And I think that will continue to motivate me. And so I felt that it was worth leaving behind an incredible job with incredible people because it would give me a the experience I was looking for in development, but also it was someone else I could work with who I felt I could trust and learn from. You referenced earlier something that kind of chimed with me, which is that sort of shrugging off of one of the um, elements of being an assistant, like diary management or just those kind of more admin roles. And I guess that's your own sort of sense of transformation of realising that you can do more and that you can spread your wings. But what was the experience like of kind of, I guess, receiving other people's sort of impressions of you, if that makes sense, you know, in in the sense that did you ever feel like it was a struggle to have other people recognise that you were now more than an assistant? I think it was never quite a struggle for me, mainly because I moved companies. So I came into Blueprint kind of at a development editor level. And I think that can help when you move around that you come in at the level that you come into. And I also felt that having Jaya and the rest of the Blueprint team, I might add all of the kind of senior team at Blueprint, I felt very respected by them. And I felt that I was there for my editorial input rather than for just kind of administrative support. I think what it was, was about building newer relationships. So for example, building relationships with agents where I wasn't just kind of assisting or setting a meeting. I was there to kind of talk to them about their clients and then talk to their clients and to try and build those relationships. So I think it was less for me about no longer being seen as an assistant by other people. I think it was more about me building kind of new relationships or slightly adjusting the relationships that I already had. I think the one thing I will say is, you know, sometimes when you're an assistant, certain people will treat you a certain way or they'll have a certain manner with you. And I think it's been interesting as I've gone through my career and have no longer been an assistant, seeing how some people might slightly adjust their behaviours. And I think all, you know, ex-assistants go through that where you are perceived in a different way. And I think I try not to to think too much about that because I'm still the same me, whether I'm an assistant or doing something else. And so I just try to continue to build good relationships with everyone. And I think it's about how maybe how other people respond to that rather Mm -hmm. than how I respond to that. Yeah. And it's something you you can't really control other people's perceptions of you. And then in terms of, I guess, kind of the skills and responsibilities, you were development editor and now development executive. So kind of talk to me about that uh, transition and, you know, what kind of things you're doing now compared to what you're doing as an editor or if it's um, one of the same. Someone once said to me about development is that kind of it's all quite a similar job, but your level of kind of seniority on a project or in a place and the amount of admin you do changes so if you're a development assistant you're obviously not that senior and you might have more admin than development if you're a kind of head of development or development producer or producer you might have slightly less admin and Mm. more creative input so essentially the job of development is is similar whether you're a development editor or development executive but now kind of within the structure of Blueprint, I've got a little bit more responsibility than I did when I was a development editor. Broadly, the job is is very similar. It's, you know, tracking projects, 
tracking writers, directors, meeting them, reading script, kind of looking for new projects and then helping creatively shape and develop those projects from kind of coming onto the slate through into production and kind of into post-production. So whatever level you're doing that, you're, you're kind of doing that. And, and I would say people at different levels of development can have different strengths. You can have the most incredible development assistant who finds amazing projects and is really good at that. And then you have heads of development who maybe aren't as strong at that, but are brilliant at kind of getting into the script detail and, and working. And I think I've started to see it less about the job title and the role and more about me as an individual and maybe where my strengths lie or the areas I might need to improve. I'm going to ask, you know, maybe a slightly basic question here, but I think it's worth asking. And that's how do you, you know, that something has been developed enough that it's ready to go into production? And who is making that decision? Is it you as the development executive? Is it the filmmaker saying, you know, I'm now happy with this kind of who is deciding that, okay, we're ready to shoot? I think it's similar to asking, is a painting ever finished? And maybe it never is. You know, maybe maybe there will always be that extra breaststroke that you need to put on. And I think each project is completely different. You know, Martin McDonough, who at Blueprint, we're, we're really fortunate to make films with, you know, is a genius and writes brilliant scripts and requires very, very little development because he, you know, he's very fully formed in the way he writes other projects you know you develop from an, a word or a, an article and it it requires a lot more kind of mm. fleshing out and, and development I think for me in development it's really about the filmmaker and, and the writer and the director and their vision and what they're doing coupled with the financier and the studio and and kind of what they need from the project in order to take it into production I shouldn't be doing too much heavy lifting um, because actually if you have the right sort of kind of brilliant people and you're teaming them with, with the best financiers, then it will be down to them. And each project, projects can get turned around in a year. They can get turned around in 10 years, everything in between. And so it really is bespoke. And I think for us as a commercial production company, when a project's developed enough is when it's being greenlit and is going to start shooting. But even then, right up to the shoot, you are always working on the script. You are always working on the creative and just trying to tell the best possible version of that story and to facilitate filmmakers to tell the best possible version of their story. And at what point does your specific involvement in a project end? You know, are you staying on board throughout production or, you know, once that development period is over, it's like, and on to the next one? Yes, I'm staying across it into production for my projects that I'm working on at, at Blueprint. You know, I will be watching kind of daily footage, rushes, we call them, and and kind of looking at those and liaising with the creative team on the film and the production team on the film to support editorially as and where is needed and is appropriate on each particular project and then into post-production in the edit kind of attending cuts and giving my feedback um to help shape the film so it is something at blueprint because we are a production company that and we're fortunate that we do produce quite a lot of films um last year we shot three films released two and shot and released the tv series so we are quite a productive production company mm -hmm. so i'm fortunate to be able to work across production um and into post-production as well how have you honed the art of giving feedback? Because I feel like that one is so tricky just to get the language right and to consider maybe who's hearing it at, at what point they're hearing it. Yeah, I just feel like it's a fine art. So how do you approach that? I don't think I have honed it. I think it's always <laughs> a learning process. And I think, it re again, it really varies. You know, I obviously produce short films. And so the relationships I have with those film filmmakers are usually a very, very short hand. And I can be 
much, much more direct and kind of can I can often anticipate what they're thinking before they're thinking it. At Blueprint, again, there are some relationships that I have there where, again, you kind of can instinctively read that. Other times you're slightly more at a distance from a project. And so you are reading all of the context. You're reading what you know about the project, what is needed and what the filmmaker wants, but also what Blueprint is is wants and, and blueprints opinion on it mm. and also the financier so you're kind of feeding in multiple um kind of tr- tracks to your feedback i think for me you know it is about asking questions rather than being prescriptive i think it's about interrogating what the filmmaker wants and needs and is is trying to say and not trying to offer too many solutions because a writer or director can brilliantly offer those solutions themselves that's why they're making the movie and so I think it's about knowing maybe the questions to pose rather than the solutions to the problem and I think often when you start out and I know I was guilty of this myself you know you go very prescriptive with things because you think well okay I think that's a problem and maybe the way to solve it is this you 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 overwrite and over deliver feedback and actually sometimes it's just about alerting things that maybe snag your read or snag your view of something and and allowing the space for the filmmaker to come up with those solutions Mm. yeah I like that visual of yeah just a moment of friction or snagging as you say and um yeah what's causing that and then you spoke about kind of wanting to go to blueprint because they were a production company and it facilitating your own journey as a producer what is the difference in working for an independent production company as opposed to a public funder you know why was that something or an environment that you felt suited you or that you could learn from at this particular stage in your career at a production company, you are kind of much more on the ground, you know, you're actively in production, you might often develop a closer relationship with certain talent, kind of getting into the weeds and the nitty gritty of the development process and beyond. Um, at a, you know, public service funder or a financier, you are slightly more at arm's length, you are you know the producer is there kind of to do that you are also supporting the producer and facilitating the producer so you're slightly more at an arm's length and I certainly wasn't as as an assistant even more at an arm's length I think at a production company as well you know you are slightly more commercially minded obviously than a public funder although the public funder of course you have to be aware of, of the amount of funding you're providing and making sure that everyone's delivering on what you're funding at a production company you you know you want to get the film financed and made and so there is that kind of consideration but I think for us as a company you know we will only take on projects that we really believe will will, will go into into production and that we will believe will be made and we will work with the financier to make them and so we that gives us the luxury to be very filmmaker driven and try not to allow the commerciality of a project to feed into it but actually I think commercial can be used quite often as a dirty word and kind of a way of dumbing down or diluting someone's vision and I think for something to be commercial just means that it's understood and and who wouldn't want their films to be understood really and if I think of commercial movies I love I mean Moonlight and Parasite did very well commercially and they're not commercial movies but they are universally understood and sometimes there is a universality in the specific of the story and I think that's what really excites me and drives me personally is is finding those specific stories that can find a wider audience. 
Totally. And given that development is, you know, it's it's a fun job, it's reading, it's watching, it's having, you know, exciting conversations with filmmakers, but it's also work that is probably very easy to take home with you because of that. How do you go about setting boundaries and saying, okay, I need to check out at 6pm or 7pm tonight, particularly when, you know, you could be reading on your iPad on the commute home and, and again, when you're actually at home? I think it's hard. I think it's a process. I think I'm learning. I'm still not there yet. I think I'm very fortunate in that I have a kind of boundless enthusiasm for what I do and my job and I absolutely love it. And so a lot of the time it doesn't feel like work. So if I'm fortunate enough to get to go to the theatre of an evening or to be watching films or reading, that feels like pleasure to me. But I think you're right in that sometimes that can blur the line between work and your personal life. In fact, it just definitely does blur it. And so I think it's about ensuring that you have other things in your life that don't revolve around, you know, film and TV. You know, I absolutely love to travel and, you know, very fortunate to be able to do that. And I love swimming and I love, there are so many other things in my life that I love aside from from what I do. And I also have very close friends and and people and family members and people in my life who don't work in in the industry. And they really ground me because a lot of the people that I'm spending time with, we're not talking about cinema, we're not talking about work, we're talking about other things. And I think that just helps to give me headspace to then return to the work that I'm doing, feeling refreshed Um, and just looking after myself, you know, going to therapy I'm a huge advocate for you know going having lots of baths just looking after myself as much as I can but also I think I would say to anyone you know if you really want a firm work-life balance boundary then development is probably not the (laughs) career for you because it but what a privilege what a pleasure and I still every day can't believe that I get to do what I do because I wrote some emails when I was 19 in the hopes that I might be able to. I still every day can't believe and I pinch myself that I'm here now actually getting to do this job. And so I think that makes the lack of boundary feel a little bit more bearable. What's your favourite part of the job? I think it's relationships. It's it's what I kind of alluded to earlier. I think it's about building relationships, both, you know, with my colleagues with my you know filmmakers and writers who I meet or who I work with with people in the industry you know people outside of my company people who I've connected with and worked with and I've grown with people who've become my friends I think it's the part that I I really love and I feel this connection and you know the reason I want to make films is to connect with others and I think it's incredible and one of the things that excites me most about this career is the relationships with other people and the relationships that I will build across across my life but also I think the, my relationship with cinema and being able to see an incredible film and think could I work with this person could this movie be interesting if it was you know re- remade in English or, or we approached it in a certain way having this kind of instant connection and then being able to use those relationships that I've built to kind of actually make films so I think it, it's about connection everything that I do is is really about connection. And then sticking with this idea of relationships and looping back to a very specific type of relationship that you referenced earlier with Rowan Woods and J.O. Campbell, which is that of mentorship and other women that champion you. Was that something you kind of sought out? And if so, why? And I often think with mentorship, it's quite difficult maybe to identify at what stage in your career you might need a mentor. So again, was that something you were thinking, okay, I, I need to find someone that is a couple of steps ahead of me because I need to start to envision? Or was it something that just happened much more organically? 
I think it was definitely organic. I would absolutely love a mentor now. So if anyone, if anyone wants to formally mentor me who's listening, I'm really up for it. I think there aren't many opportunities to be formally mentored in the film industry. And I would absolutely love, love that. I think what I've found is connections with usually women I found across my career who have championed me, made space for me, told me that my opinion was worth hearing and that my voice was valuable, trusted my taste. And I feel very, very fortunate because that has all helped to build my confidence, which has been the key thing to kind of building my career is building my confidence. I definitely think there are lots and lots of brilliant men and women across the industry who are there and who actually if you ask for help and if you reach out to them and say could 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 you advise me on this the vast majority of them will say yes and so I think there is an element of kind of building your own mentorship support but also knowing that there are people out there who you can reach out to is a very freeing thing and so I mentor now myself I mentor with arts emergency and that feels great in that I can then be that person for someone who has no access to the industry I always think if I'd had a mentor you know coming into the industry my life would be so different and I think I would love to offer what little I know to mentees who don't have the luxury that I have of building relationships within the industry because they can't access it I always felt that there was no space in the industry for someone like me and I'm a middle-class white girl you know there there are lots of middle-class white girls in the industry but I really felt that there was no space for someone like me and so I want to open bash open the door and allow as many people who feel like that because I think if you're listening to this and you feel like that then there is a space for you and you're exactly the kind of person who should be in the industry. And the work you do with Arts Emergency is mentoring in an official capacity but like we have to mention the fact that you're an incredibly generous and encouraging person just on a day-to-day level and in a kind of peer-to-peer realm, you know, the kind words that you said about best girl grip, you know, they're not just for show. You've always been incredibly supportive of, of the podcast. And I'm wondering, you know, is that just something that comes naturally to you as a person or that was something that you recognised there was a lack in the film industry when you came into it and you thought, OK, I need to cultivate a sense of kindness, you know, with with other women, but just with everyone in the film industry. I definitely think, you know, if you ask my my friends and my family, you know, they'll say I'm a giver and I'm someone who I love kind of connecting people and I love finding like-minded people or, or seeing kind of connections between between others and trying to facilitate those connections. So it's definitely something I instinctively love to do. But I also think I, I've always felt a little something of an outsider within the film industry in that I would meet a lot of people and, and feel that I was slightly the um, the kind of the loser girl at school or the nerd or something I think there were so many brilliantly impressive intimidating people within the film industry and I always kind of felt that I didn't quite fit in and so I think I've always led from authenticity and just led from building relationships that are just authentic essentially friendships I don't like to kind of network or use the term networking I'm just genuinely really interested in making connections with people and becoming friends with people and I think that's something I got from my mother who is Irish and you know in her DNA she is remarkably interested in any and all people and loves telling stories and I think that's something I've really kind of inherited and so I think for me it was just about trying to kind of build my own little tribe of I guess normal people sometimes people in the film industry talk about like oh you're a normal film person and and that's not to say that anyone else isn't is abnormal but it's more that 
finding people that you can connect with on a level that isn't just a kind of networking transactional relationship, but is something that you can really get to know a person and understand them and to build a, a genuine connection with them. And so I think that's just the way I've always approached things. I think, again, as my confidence has grown, I've learned that actually, if I can just be myself rather than try to fit in with others that I maybe don't fit in with that actually people will start to like me for me and I will have something to offer that is authentic and real and that I only I can offer because only I am myself yeah I think it is that thing of yeah the transactional nature sometimes the relationships and I think it just speaks to the need for it the fact that it was almost surprising when you know we met and we spoke and I was like Katie's so nice she's so low like <laughs> it feels so rare <laughs> like it's crazy but it's true we've spoken for almost 15 minutes now and I'm aware that we haven't even touched on the fact that you're a short film producer and a very prolific one and you know we could do an entire podcast dedicated just to that um, aspect of your career how did you step into that role why was that something that you wanted to do I guess alongside development and do you feel that having both of those kind of twin career paths they inform one another? I was working in television at the time that I started producing uh, short films and it was because I really desperately wanted to work in film but I couldn't find an entry point I couldn't find a job I couldn't find a way in and as I mentioned I worked at Disney with other fellow interns and they a lot of them had gone to Bournemouth actually to study production and were very very good at the kind of practical side of filmmaking and they made a lot of short films and so a couple of them Sid, Beth and Anastasia we kind of made a little collective where we all just made loads of short films and we put in 50 quid each and we'd make them for 200 quid you know expenses only and we'd each take turns kind of writing directing producing and the first film we made actually won the BBC's 24-hour film festival which was really cool and kind of gave us that kind of buoyancy of, of thinking okay we can do this and that was an incredibly safe space to make films because I just learned so much about short filmmaking in particular because you know shorts are their own kind of art form and have their own specific needs and, and ways to tell stories and so I think I was doing that and then you know I met Yero Timmy Bew who you know I was working on Holby with her she had a project about young carers um, that she'd been developing and the episode of Holby City we were working on was about young carers and so she told me about it and so then when we both by pure serendipity and coincidence ended up at BBC Films we kind of decided to develop that project and so a lot of it has been through relationships that I've built again these kind of genuine connections that I've built with others that friends you know good friends that then we've wanted to creatively collaborate. And so the way it informs my life is it's talent development, really. It's it's finding filmmakers or, or storytellers who I find inspiring and who maybe have a point of view or represent a point of view that hasn't been seen as much on screen. And I think for me as a producer, that's what really drives me. And it can really inform my work at Blueprint in terms of, of building that kind of confidence in a talent relationship. But also my work at Blueprint can really inform my work as a producer because I'm working with, you know, two of the best producers, Graham Broadpent and Pete Janine in the UK, in the world, really. And so I'm learning from them all the time. And so that can inform my work. But the kinds of projects that I'm working on at Blueprint, obviously much bigger scale um, than a short film. And so it's quite nice having that sort of balance of having the autonomy over a much smaller short and then being able to work as part of a, a brilliant team on a, a much bigger scale of project. And I guess as well, it's like sort of being given tools at Blue Blueprint and then giving yourself a sandbox to kind of play with them in and experiment with like, OK, I've picked up a new spade. Let's see what like this does and, you know, what I can create by having learned that. 
Yeah, I think I think definitely. And I think actually it's it's sometimes the opposite where I have a short film project that I, you know, am really passionate about and I'm led by that and I'm led by the kind of the, the vision of that director and what I'm doing. And then I have kind of, you know, Graham or Pete's voice in my head as I'm working, you know, thinking, okay, what would they do? How would they approach this? And I'll be kind of led almost by the short that I'm working on. But then I've got this incredible foundation of experience that I've learned at Blueprint that I can keep using and, and utilising um, in the short film space. And you referenced there the fact that you're interested in kind of working with uh, underrepresented or marginalised voices. But does that also like translate to the kind of stories that you're interested in telling? You know, is there a particular genre, you know, a particular space that you're really excited about working in? Or, you know, to frame it differently, if you were to look back at all the shorts that you've produced, is there something that unites them that you see as being kind of the, the Katie Sinclairness of that project, if you will? I think... The thing that would hopefully unite all of the projects that I pursue as a producer is empathy, empathy towards the kind of human condition and others and situations that we might not quite understand, but we can empathise with. And I think stories that haven't been told in the way that they are being told on screen. I think those two things, you know, any project I can work across all kinds of genres and with all different kinds of filmmakers. But I think what connects with me are those two elements. What does a good producer look like to you? Or how how do you manifest that role in the best way possible? Again, I think it's relationships. (laughs) I think 80% of being a producer is relationships because as a producer, if you're doing your job well, you should be sitting back and allowing other brilliant people to shine. That's really your job. And so if you build good relationships with others, you can get the best out of people and that gets the best out of the film. And I think, you know, being organised, being communicative, being kind, being thorough, rigorous, creative, all of those things are all important. And some producers are stronger in certain areas than others. But if I look at all the good producers that I know and, and the people I most admire, both my peers and my kind of much more senior producers that I've worked with, they've all had brilliant relationships of some form and have been able to leverage those relationships uh, to make fantastic cinema. Can we unpack that just a little bit? Just because yeah. you can you can come to a relationship with the best of intentions, you know, with the desire to communicate well and to facilitate a filmmaker's vision. But, you know, on the day, you know, on a shoot, things get stressful, you know, budgets are tight, time is tight. When things get tense or if things get stressful, how do you kind of continue or sustain the desire to make that relationship as 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 balanced and as symbiotic as possible? I think having a brilliant team around you can really help and making sure as a producer, you know, in my short films, I always work with you know production managers or co-producers, people who I can count on and I can support and who I can lean on and I can ask their opinion and I can ask them what I should be doing and I can I can collaborate with. I think, you know, some producers work solely alone and I completely admire them but they will always have a team around them. They will always have support. And I think if you can find that support for yourself and have people around you that you really trust, 
that will empower you to make the difficult decisions that you have to make as a producer. And certainly on my short films, you know, there will always be issues with time and money and you never have enough of either. (laughs) And so you're always kind of grappling. And I think if you feel supported by your own team, then you will have the confidence and the ability to fully support other people. And you also recently set up your own production company called Tannehill Productions. You know, is there a goal or an ambition behind that banner? Is it to continue producing short films? Is it bigger than that? Talk to me about where you might see that company being in five or 10 years time. So I think for me, you know, I've set up Tannehill as a kind of vehicle for the short films that I make. And I think all of my short films, again, it's it's about championing underrepresented stories and working with emerging filmmakers and developing them. And so I think, you know, I would love to keep continuing to make short films that are shining light on issues and shining light on, on others and actually my job isn't to shine a light it's about brightening others lights or making sure there's enough of a focus on that light and I think for me that's what Tannehill should should do and in a practical sense it's about kind of having a vehicle and an outlet as a you know when you're making short films it's very difficult to make them as an individual you need to have a company you need to have a kind of a brand and an ethos that you're working with and so I think for me it's just about building those relationships with filmmakers to the point where Tannehill becomes synonymous with those kind of stories in the short film space specifically. And then this might slightly replicate the answer that you gave when we were talking about how you set boundaries between you know work and, and personal life but I'm interested in the fact that you spoke there about being interested in telling stories that relate to empathy and I think it really comes across in a lot of what you do that you place a big emphasis on care how does that manifest in the sense of putting a production together you know how do you take care of everyone that's on your set and how do you take care of yourself when you're doing a job that requires a lot of you I think a lot of taking care of people is ensuring that first of all the right kind of protective measures are in place so on a short film you know I will have a contract that will have been developed by you know, either the financier I'm working with or a lawyer that will lay out to whoever's working on my set kind of my promise to them, you know, what they'll be paid, the hours they'll be doing and kind of any health and safety requirements and and what is expected of them so that everyone coming onto one of my productions kind of knows what I'm offering them. And ultimately, I'm the one who's legally responsible for them and responsible for their well-being. And so I kind of put that at the forefront just from bringing someone on board a project. And even before that, you know, referencing, you know, crew members, making sure that I've checked out, you know, everyone I'm working with, essentially, from all layers of, of, of production, right from the trainee up and, and finding out what they like and, and how they are to work with. And also having a conversation with them and, and kind of asking what they need and, and how I can best facilitate them and, and look after them and care for them. And then when I'm on set, you know, my big job, I think, is just to look after everyone and, you know, on the last days, the last short film that I, I produced. You no, know, I think crew members were getting quite alarmed. So I was going up to them and going, Are you all right? How's it going? And they, I think they were thinking, What? And one of them said to me, Oh, well, I'm just used to the producer sitting in the corner, kind of furiously typing on a laptop. And of course, I did a lot of that when I was on set as well. But but I think, you know, for me, it's about checking in with everyone, getting a sense of the temperature, because sometimes you are having to make difficult decisions. Do we drop a scene? You know, what are we, how are we going to get this done in the time? Do we have the resource we need? And so if you've got a sense of how people are doing, then you you know how best to care for them. And sometimes it's not asking them what they do, what do you need? 
And of course, I do that. But it's also about sensing what they might need. And, and there's a lot of kind of empathy and like emotional intelligence, EQ that, that goes into that. And that's something I, I always try to bring. And then again, it's about trying to do the same for myself, check in with myself, check in with what I need, follow my instincts, listening to my gut, knowing when to rest, knowing when to take a break, knowing when to focus on things that aren't anything to do with film. And so just kind of continuing to hone that skill, though it's easier said than done. And then what is something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career so far or something that you feel like you might have benefited from learning earlier? My best friend, Jessica Easton, who you know I've known since we were seven years old and has been an incredible lifeline, works kind of in the charity sector, quite quite senior and she has had management training and you know in film nobody gets trained how to manage (laughs) nobody gets trained how to you know really look after others and I think one of the things she's taught me is about kind of this idea of capital and that everyone in any job in any in any organization or, or whatever has a certain amount of capital that they can spend and traditionally you know that's you know the assistant or the most junior person might have the least capital and the CEO might have the most but actually in reality often the assistant is the most valuable person in the company has a lot of capital and and it kind of varies but each person has a certain amount and you only have so much to spend you only have so much energy that you can put at a certain thing or towards a certain thing before your capital is spent and so I think I've always been someone who's been very enthusiastic and always kind of pushing and 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 trying to achieve and being very ambitious and actually I think over the years what I've understood is you know sometimes it's better off holding your capital back and not trying to spend it all the time and actually using it on things that are very important so for me for example you know inclusivity diversity all of those kind of terms and and those realities are so important to me and I'm thinking okay well if I'm going to spend my capital how am I spending it in a way that most benefits others and the work and the industry rather than just kind of benefiting myself and I wish when I was kind of younger I'd heard that even also from a kind of uh, negotiating point of view you know when you are going in to negotiate your salary, when you're going in to negotiate your title, you have a certain amount of capital to spend and you kind of know within yourself, okay, well, actually, you know, right now I'm particularly valuable or I'm less valuable or I've had this and that and that will always help you in that process. And I think sometimes we just lead in and go, right, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to get. And it's about reading the situation. And it's about, you know, that that AA prayer or, or whatever it is where it's, you know, accepting the things I cannot change granting me the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference and I think that is just something that I live my life by now and knowing when to take a step back from a situation is something I'm still learning but I try to focus on more and more. Mm, That's really interesting I've never heard it framed like that so thank you so much for sharing that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And then finally is there a film from a woman director that you consider to be a hidden gem or just something that you love wholeheartedly and return to or think about a lot? So there is a film called Instinct by a director called Helena Rain, who is a Dutch director, came out in 2019. um, And it was at TIFF and LFS and lots of festivals around the world. Um, And it's an incredible kind of prison drama about a female psychologist who works in a prison and develops a very unorthodox Mm. relationship with one of the male inmates. And it is this incredible kind of psychosexual thriller 
that is so morally ambiguous and always kind of treads the line between what is what is acceptable and what isn't in society and for men and women. And so I think that film, you know, Helena is someone who I've been very fortunate to get to know in the past couple of years off the back of that film. And I think it is truly special. And whenever I, I recommend it to someone, they come back feeling really inspired uh, by this female filmmaker's vision. It stars the Red Woman from Game of Thrones, is that right? She's the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Katie, thank you so much for joining me on Best Girl Grip. It's been such a pleasure to chat in depth with you. I feel like, yeah, I've I've learned a lot about you already in the in the last hour. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe and all that good stuff. This is the last planned episode for a little while as I retreat to hibernate and also just incubate ideas and general energy for the next season. If you're all caught up, I'll see you on the other side. Uh, But if not, there are over a hundred other episodes to keep you occupied wherever you get your podcasts, including with some of the folks that Katie mentioned in the episode, such as Rose Garnett and Rowan Woods. So dig in. Thank you.